Welcome to the Political R&D Podcast. I'm Robbie Krieger-Smith. And I'm Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. We bring political analysis and commentary on events in Alberta and Canadian politics. We discuss policy and look for expert insights into topics relevant to government, policymakers, and issues that face voters. Hi, Deirdre. Hi, Robbie. What's, his, what's our date today? The date is May 7th. A couple weeks out now from the election. <laughs> and one week, it has been exactly one week today since the government of Alberta was sworn in. Yeah. So it's been a busy week. It sounds like the government basically got right to work. <laughs> yeah, in Ontario. <laughs> in Ontario, absolutely. <laughs> but they did do they did do a few things here before you left. Yeah, absolutely. So we had the swearing in and uh rather large cabinet compared to the NDP. Uh 24 25 ministries in this government. Mm-hmm. Um which uh you know some people were online complaining about the size of the cabinet, but the NDP had a atypically small cabinet. And I think that's more reflection of the experience level that the NDP had to draw from when they were elected. Whereas uh, the UCP's bench is a little stronger than the NDP's was for sure at the start. They didn't have a lot of uh, really strong candidates because they had, they went from a caucus of four to a caucus of 57. Yeah. So, and there were a couple of, we're going to stick with controversial. And I think, I think most people have noted who the most controversial picks were. Uh, Adriana LaGrange for education and Jason Nixon for environment. Schweitzer becomes, Schweitzer becomes controversial, not because, not even so much as because it's Schweitzer, even though there's some of that. But who do you want to talk about first? <laughs> uh, well, let's start with Schweitzer um, and talk about him as Justice Minister and Solicitor General, because uh, that was actually the first appointment that was made aside from the Premier. Right. Okay. So Schweitzer, I mean, it's it's controversial right off the hop because the UCP is under investigation for their leadership vote and their leadership uh, campaign, really. So it's controversial just because they will actually be overseeing the prosecution of anything that comes up out of that investigation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting. I think that... Probably what will happen is that sooner than later, the elections commissioner will probably no longer exist. Right. (laughs) Um, But I think that the election commissioner also knew that the likelihood of 
that office continuing to exist if the UCP was elected was fairly small. Mm -hmm. And that's probably a part of why there was such urgency to get key parts of the investigation addressed and handed off to the RCMP. I think politically it becomes more challenging for the government via Schweitzer to interfere if there are criminal charges pressed um, that, in my view, would probably generate a fairly significant backlash and make it look like they've got something to hide. (laughs) But will it, though? This is because, I mean, you and I both spend a half-decent amount of time on social media. We talk about politics outside of our podcast. Um, But like you've heard as well, there are people who are wringing their hands over SNC-Lavalin and are looking at the leadership race and saying, well, that's just politics. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Again, psychology behind all of this is just amazing to me. And that is something that I find I'm not looking forward to as this investigation moves forward because I guess because I'm not looking forward to the possibility that people are going to be supporting a UCP government's decision not to move forward with a prosecution of the UCP. Yeah, I think there's a couple of different ways that it could go. You could see potentially the UCP find scapegoats. So as an example, Mm. somebody like Peter Singh in Calgary East, Mm -hmm. you know, plausible deniability and all that. And if criminal charges are pressed and they try to make the case that they weren't aware of it and it was being driven by him, um then volunteers yeah by volunteers etc so you look for fall people and i don't think that kenny or his most senior people are dumb enough that they would have had direct involvement um or documented involvement in it so again there's an element of plausible deniability that they could allow an investigation or charges to proceed and say, hey, this isn't us, you know, we've kicked this person out of caucus, or we've asked for their resignation, that type of thing. Um, the the <laughs> challenge for them becomes, and I think that we saw this in the election, is that people are willing to tolerate unethical behavior or lapses when it's politically convenient for them. And if there's not solid progress on a pipeline or strong job growth numbers, then it becomes another log on the fire that says this government isn't being effective and isn't delivering on their promises. And so it will really depend on what the political climate is in terms of promises that they've made and where the delivery of those is sitting. And I think that'll be what really determines whether there's a political price to pay for any fallout from a potential criminal investigation. Yeah, that's, that's definitely possible. What did you think of uh, Schweitzer's refusal to bring in a third party prosecution when it comes to that case? Um, 
I think politically it's smart because if you do that, you do say that they're what you're implicitly saying is that there is a conflict of interest. There is a conflict of interest. (laughs) There absolutely is. But in politics, perception is reality. And when, when you. There's only a conflict if you admit there's a conflict. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I think politically it's smart. There's no benefit to them actually doing that. Um, Certainly the NDP is going to try and, make a case against the UCP and you'll probably see them spending quite a bit of their opposition time once the legislature sits trying to hammer on that. Um, but mm-hmm. at this point, I don't think that there's any benefit to them doing that. So politically, I think it's the right decision for them. Right. Mm. See, and I, I think because Schweitzer was intimately involved in the leadership race because Schweitzer is on record complaining about the possibility of, uh, there were concerns about the integrity of the voting system. Okay. That's what it was. Numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so both Brian, Gina and Schweitzer made a complaint to the UCP, uh, and did so publicly. And did so very publicly. Yeah, they went into the media and said that there was concerns about the integrity of the vote. Of course, now we know Schweitzer has, um, I don't know, if capit- well, capitulated was yeah. what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he's he's not a stupid person and he's realized that coming out and supporting premier kenny and saying that he has confidence in the integrity of his win as leader um has obviously landed him a pretty sweet cabinet position so (laughs) uh gross (laughs) i i remember hearing about this when i first when i first became involved in a party i remember being told that politics is incredibly incestuous Right. It's it's who, you know, and and the longer that I spend in this, the names that, you know, continually pop up and that you see that mobility for some people within the party. And it's always it's the same people. Yeah. Right. So. I felt that Schweitzer was in the UCP leadership race solely to give some hope to former PCs, uh, some of those with a more progressive leaning, a hope that there was still a place for them in the party. So in my view, that's why he was there. I know that I've seen a number of people say, no, he was absolutely there to win it. Yeah, I talked to Doug a couple times in person during the leadership race, and um, he was convinced that there was a path to victory for him and uh, I don't doubt his sincerity but I also do believe that it's kind of a little bit more of a a longer term game and you know I know some people that work with Denton's Harper's a senior advisor with Denton's um Schweitzer had worked with them um up until recently and it it was heavily rumored that he just like what you said, that he was a candidate that was intended there to put some progressive lipstick on 
the UCP <laughs> project. Um, yeah. And uh, so, you know, it it is what it is. He is where he is. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting for me to see what the policy actually looks like once legislature starts to sit. And we know that there was a large amount of involvement and support from pro-life groups like the Wilberforce, like um, right now. Mm-hmm. And so there's been some checks wrote and it'll be interesting to see whether you see those cashed in policy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, that's the thing that I'm really looking for is, and I think we talked about this in a previous podcast, but usually what happens is a party will campaign from the extremes and then moderate when they're in government. Mm-hmm. But we'll see what winds up happening with this government. So, Right, because that's a great segue into the education minister, Adriana LaGrange. She satisfies a nod to the Parents for Choice in Education for the John Carpe group, for uh, the Right Now and Wilberforce groups. Like, her appointment settled a lot of tabs, I think, for education. Yeah, yeah it did. Um, and again, the one thing that particular... Well, there's two pieces of policy that I'm concerned about with Adriana LaGrange as uh, Minister of Education is um, sex education and rhetoric around abortion and right to right to choose um, or pro-life policy mm-hmm. and how that's going to be ingrained in sex education. And then the other one is definitely around GSAs and and replacing the Schools Act with the Education Act. There was another nod to the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, John Carpe's group, and the uh, constitutional challenge to Bill 24. If you read their arguments, they had mentioned, or sorry, they, they used the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 26.3, which stated that uh, parents have a prior right to choose the education that their children will re- will receive. So that was a big piece of their uh, challenge against Bill 24. And in a now uh, highly edited Facebook Live video that's left on uh, Kenny's Facebook page, I re-listened to it because I taped it. Uh, so that I could use some of the audio out of it. And when I was listening to it again, one of the he was answering a one of a journalist question. Uh, Shane Getson, Laxane Ann Parkland had shared a Facebook post that was against the UN, and Kenny said, "You know that doesn't really matter. We're not involved with the UN really on a provincial level." And then he said. Oh, except the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We're going to quote that in the new Education Act. And I was like, oh, they've got a strong background with it. And again, Jason Kenney has some bills to pay. Yep, absolutely. And the the one thing with GSAs that they've really convinced themselves of is that the repeal of 
Bill 24 via the implementation or proclamation of the Education Act will still leave Canada, uh, still leave Alberta with the strongest GSA protections in Canada. Um, mm. It'll be on par with what British Columbia has and Ontario has. And that that is still accurate. The challenge, though, is that Alberta is one of the few provinces that still has a separate religious education system that is publicly funded. Mm-hmm. And the concern being that if students, if there's even an option for notification of students who request a GSA or join a GSA, that it acts as a deterrent, particularly in religious schools. Oh, absolutely. And so while technically accurate the practical implications of that change in legislation will be a step back and will create a void where administrators in religious educational organizations are going to have a way to effectively block gsas from existing Mm -hmm. yeah so there's a lot to watch with uh, the education minister as well but the third one was uh, Jason Mr. Nixon. Jason Nixon. <laughs> Mr. Minister I'm... of the Environment. Minister of Parks and Rec. Yes. And <laughs> and huge troll. Like yeah. that has to be the biggest troll that came out of that cabinet. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so for the uninformed, um, Minister Nixon is the fellow who it is alleged was poaching. Mm. It is alleged threatened to shoot somebody who caught him poaching and who also offered to take care of a fish and wildlife officer's wife. And sexually. uh, Sexually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, to service her. And, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's really quite something that Kenny would appoint somebody with such a checkered record, especially in his interactions with fish and wildlife, which falls under right? history. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's all I've really got to say. It's just a master troll on Kenny's part. Oh yeah. That, uh, Absolutely. And and the Bighorn Park proposal is officially uh, axed. Yeah. That will not happen now. Associate ministers, though, that was something that you felt really showed really showed some areas that the Kenny government wants to pay attention to or thinks will be very important within the next four years. And one of those. Uh, so the first one, natural gas. Yeah. Uh, so for those who are around in the Ralph Klein days, they know that our resource boom at that point was not largely driven by oil sands development, but it was actually the price of natural gas and the windfall that came from royalties associated with that. And so I think there's a bit of calculation on Kenny's part as to what is going to help him balance the budget and put us in a better fiscal position. And the fact that in addition to uh, energy minister, we also have an associate minister of natural gas. You've got the coal power generating 
stations in Alberta that are transitioning to using natural gas. And despite Kenny's promises that he's going to lift those regulations, those companies have already invested a large amount of capital into conversion and that conversion isn't going to stop. Um, So that's going to have a couple of impacts. It's going to put some pressure on supply and on price. And so there's potential there for that being a bigger part of their economic puzzle solving. Uh, You also have in British Columbia, the approval of an LNG export facility that um, may or may not proceed, but it looks like at this time it's leaning more towards will. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that came out of Quebec Premier uh, Francois Legault's uh, response to Jason Kenney's, I guess, victory speech was that there was still no social acceptability for uh, oil pipeline, but he would love to talk about an LNG pipeline. Right. So you've got two adversarial jurisdictions that are saying, no, let's not discuss oil, but let's talk about LNG. Right. And uh, Alberta is chock full of natural gas. So I think that it's a, a calculated move to appoint an associate minister of natural gas. And it speaks to where Kenny sees the future of Alberta's resource development going. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you actually do see an LNG pipeline to the east and you do see one to the west and that uh, paired with the transition from coal to natural gas as our primary source of energy, that puts a lot of strain on supply and a lot of upward pressure on prices. And that may be a windfall for the provincial government to be able to fill the holes in our budget. Mm-hmm. Does Does an LNG pipeline, do you know, I should have tried to look this up, do you know if an LNG pipeline can only carry liquefied natural gas? Because from what I understand about pipelines, we can send a bunch of different things within the same pipeline. And what I heard during that conversation, no, uh, Francois Legault's response from Quebec, what I heard from him was a possibility that if we want to bring in natural gas and we want to you know, make, uh, make sure that there's pipeline access for it. My first thought went to what goes into the pipes, because I know that you can send a lot of different things in the same pipe. Um, so LNG is slightly different. And my understanding is, um, you can put refined gas like gasoline, right? And bitumen um, that has dill bit in it, um, diluted bitumen, um, into the same pipeline. But LNG is requires slightly different infrastructure. So a pipeline could theoretically be retrofitted to carry oil and like heavier products, but LNG is a lighter product. And so you wouldn't see LNG and oil put into the same pipeline. Okay. So strategically, one of the things that I said with Francois Legault's um, comment that, you know, we'd love an LNG pipeline is you start there and maybe down the road you make an application to convert that to an oil 
pipeline, right? Right. Okay. It's so yeah, but yeah, that was that was interesting, and I agree that that there looks to be some possibility there. Plus, I was also looking at Alberta setting itself up for again a little bit of leverage when it comes to TMX because if if Quebec would like a pipeline sending LNG uh, or sorry, an LNG pipeline from right now, we've got a very big project in BC. BC might be looking for a pipeline Mm -hmm. to go through Alberta. And yeah, a little bit of, little bit of added possible leverage there. Yeah, for sure. And I think that probably if the NDP wasn't in a minority government situation and counting on the green party, you would probably see a little bit more of um, a collaborative spirit, but they're very mm-hmm. much beholden to the the um, BC Green Party. So, right, and and that definitely ties it ties their hands quite a bit. So, no, I agree. Um, but it's it's an interesting it's an interesting associate ministry because, like you said, it it either shows where he thinks the future is going or at least gives an idea of the direction that he wants Alberta to take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so there was another one, uh, Jason Luan, who was appointed associate minister of mental health and addictions. And he has background as a social worker, um, mm-hmm. and some experience there. Uh, Luan is also a member of the Asian community that has been somewhat oppositional to harm reduction sites and um, safe injection sites. So it's interesting because to me, I didn't really expect to see that be a big focus for the UCP government. Um, And there's a little bit of conflict in terms of connection and background for Luan there. Uh, Luan was also one of the candidates that generated some controversy with a blog post that was in Chinese referring to the acceptance of gay people and how it was kind of a slippery slope and it it wasn't right. Um, And uh, so obviously there's some concern there in terms of mental health and and homelessness and people that struggle with mental health and addictions and they're all kind of interconnected um so it'll be interesting to see how his personal beliefs influence and color his involvement in that um but definitely with the social work background i think that it makes sense in terms of that appointment um And it'll be interesting to see what sort of position the UCP government, the health minister and Jason Luan take in terms of harm reduction sites, safe injection sites, and what that looks like in terms of regulation and financial support for them. Mm -hmm. I, I was impressed with it as well. And again, wasn't expecting it, but because you know that was something that the NDP came under fire for was uh, mostly from Dr. David Swan about the opioid crisis and what our government was doing about it. This 
in a way to me almost seems like a possible nod in in the direction of uh you know your more left supporters that have been saying this is a problem and it really i don't think it was something that the ndp had a very successful uh track record on yeah and i i think that with only having one one seat in Edmonton as well, you are going to see some effort by the UCP to try and address some of the social policy concerns that uh, probably left them effectively shut out in Edmonton. And so Mm -hmm. some of these things may potentially be a nod towards that. Yeah, which would be smart. That was one of the first things that I said that the night that they were elected, I said what they need to do now is build bridges Mm -hmm. like, and you know, some of these, (laughs) I, uh, the ministry of, or sorry, the associate minister of mental health doesn't really erase the massive troll that is Jason Nixon as minister of the environment. But again, there, there may be some bridge building going on with that. But, Minister of, or sorry, Associate Minister of Red Tape Reduction. (laughs) So this one was kind of comical because the actual proclamation stated Grant Hunter was going to be the Minister of Red Tape. Ah, yes. (laughs) So uh, Kenny Schweitzer and uh, the Lieutenant Governor, uh, Lois Mitchell, pulled an audible and uh, changed the name on the proclamation to (laughs) Minister of Red Tape Reduction. Um, but, uh, this has been one of the things that Kenny has been pretty clear on throughout the campaign has been the amount of, uh, red tape or administrative burden that's been added to businesses and how it's holding small business back, how it's holding back energy infrastructure development and investment Mm -hmm. you know they've thrown out the number we'll get rid of two regulations for every new one we bring in right Uh, so it definitely is just a signal that they are trying to be more open for business and trying to help make sure that uh economic development is a higher priority for sure Mm -hmm. like as far as as far as being business friendly i actually wrote about this last year maybe um and i found i mean when you look at it was actually daniel smith did a a bit about this and she was actually looking at the number or sorry the amount of taxes that businesses pay in calgary and calgary is a little bit of a uh, an anomaly because they actually charge their businesses a lot more in taxes than they do their residents. Mm -hmm. And so I was, this, this was one that kind of started it, but it really made me think, um, you know, also in 2015 when Prentice was saying, we're going to move to the progressive taxation system for personal income tax. And he said, we're going to leave corporations alone. There was a big uproar. Albertans were not happy with that. They, you know, it, it granted there was just so much wrong with that campaign, but it really fed into that, uh, you know, PC friends of corporations and, you know, screw everybody else. And it so it 
I don't know, uh, you know, people in Calgary, and not everyone in Calgary, of course, but there are a lot of people in Calgary that complain about the level of taxation on their property tax. But it's almost like they aren't listening to, you know, businesses being taxed even more. And the only way to reduce it for the businesses is to put that responsibility onto homeowners. So, uh, yeah, I, in a way, I kind of agree that, that maybe Alberta isn't nearly as business friendly as it could be. But I think that falls more to uh, Albertans than it does necessarily to our regulations. Yeah, well, so Calgary, certainly the property tax thing, it's a function of there were a lot of big corporate offices that were located there that had um, not endless financial means, but significant financial resources and capacity. And when the downturn happened, that capacity was lost. Mm-hmm. And so... The but they ta- shifted. They shifted more to businesses. They shifted more to businesses, and so the the proportion, like these numbers aren't exact, but say in the past it was fifty five to business and forty five to residential. That proportion never changed. Mm-hmm. So what happened was, as there were less and less businesses, each business was paying a larger dollar amount. Right. Um, like I've heard of some businesses in Calgary and these aren't just big corporations. They're small businesses. They're small businesses. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, their tax bills over four years were three or four times what they were um, over the course of the downturn. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, in a downturn where there's less purchasing happening and stagnant or declining growth, to have a business have their tax bill triple or quadruple obviously puts significant pressure. And so you make the comment about it's more about political climate and choices Albertans have made. Yes, they made that choice in 2015, but I think that they saw that that wasn't the right choice and Mm -hmm. that they do have to quote unquote, look in the mirror a little bit and make sure that they are paying more of their fair share. And so you've seen Calgary, in this most recent budget, they've taken steps to amend that and put more of that tax burden onto the homeowners, mm-hmm. and not have it be subsidized by business. So it's um, it's hopefully going to be a little bit more in balance. And ultimately, at the end of the day, revenue growth and economic growth is driven by the private sector and where the tax base comes from. So if you can set corporations and small business up for success and give them an opportunity to drive prosperity and, and grow employment, then that is going to make our governments more sustainable in the long run. So there's, there's definitely a point at which the taxation burden becomes too much. And I would argue for sure that Calgary had reached that point. Um, It's been a little bit better in Edmonton, um, Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, definitely Albertans did make that choice in 2015, but they said, Hey, we made a mistake in 2019. Yeah. And I think too, where Calgary's concerned, these are like, this is not a, this is not a new taxation model that they were in, in during that, the most recent downturn, this is a very old taxation model that, that worked very well for the city. They were able to keep 
personal property taxes lower. And so they did. And like you said, some of those, you know, with so many head offices out of oil and gas, ability to pay really came into it. Yeah. So um, they, yeah, I guess you can say they took unfair advantage of it. That's one of the times that I did agree with Danielle Smith because I, I don't think I don't think that you can, in a way, pick winners and losers when it comes to taxation. Right, corporations benefit just as much from having public services and hospitals and schools and all of those other things because that's why they don't move to places that don't have them. Yeah, well, <laughs> and part of the misconception though is that corporations equals big multinational conglomerations, and that's right. not, it's true, right? Like, I have a small business that consults on communications and politics i'm incorporated but i'm the only employee right uh, it's not like i've got some big trust fund account or offshore accounts like <laughs> um i i still technically qualify as a small business right so right. the the definition is a little bit muddied i think for opponents of corporate tax breaks and they try to equate any sort of break on taxation towards a corporate entity as being trickle down economics and mm -hmm. the Walmarts of the world don't need a tax break necessarily, but uh, a small business like myself um, would really benefit. And that might mean the difference between just going it alone or closing up shop or hiring an employee or two. So, right. yeah. Yeah. And, and you're right. It's, you know, uh, it's, it's not semantics. There are there are specific definitions which companies fall under based on something like incorporation, which some people have to do for liability purposes. Yeah. Right. So uh, that's something that, again, not everybody knows. But yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens with those tax things. But Tuesday was the last full day, I think, that Jason Kenney spent in Alberta of that first week. He might be back now, I'm not sure, but he flew off to Ottawa on the 1st of May. Yep. Yeah, so again, he promised that he was going to fight for Alberta and every venue that he possibly could. <laughs> and uh, so there was a couple things. The Senate was, the Senate Standing Committee on Transport and Communication were holding town halls and also holding hearings with respect to Bill C-48, which is the quote-unquote tanker ban, right. and, and uh, Bill C-69, which was the, or is the bill, um, the new environmental assessment bill. And so... It, or quote-unquote, no more pipelines bill. More pipelines bill, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, Kenny, uh, on the day actually of his inauguration, um, or swearing in, testified in Edmonton and then promptly hopped on a plane to head back to Ontario. So we talked a little bit about this when we were doing prep work, but this isn't so much about um, this trip to Ontario, isn't so much about necessarily trying to fight 
these bills because the the liberal government is essentially a, a lame duck government at this point. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to build bridges and opposition to the liberals in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he definitely he in appearing before these committees is making political statements mm-hmm. and doing that to show that he's doing something. Um, but it's more about drumming up opposition to the federal liberal government and trying to install a more friendly government in Ottawa come the fall. Right. I think he did have a full schedule while he was there. He met with Doug Ford. He met with, or sorry, gave a speech to the Canadian club of Toronto. He uh, was on CTV power play he did some uh, some newspaper interviews as well, and really, this is a calculated move on Kenny's part to install a more friendly government in Ottawa, so mm-hmm. that he can accomplish some of his objectives. And I, I know we didn't want to get into the federal <laughs> politics. And we definitely need to do a podcast very soon where we talk about the implications of some of the by elections and the polling, mm-hmm. uh, but. Kenny's the one thing as much as I loathe uh, the premier and his record is he is a very hard worker and he's very politically astute and he does his homework. And so if he truly believed that there was any potential for a federal liberal reup, you would probably see him staying out of the framework. And he's doing this because he believes he's got nothing to lose. So, But that was, I mean, that only brought us to Thursday, I think. Um, on Friday, he had, to, he had to comment from outside of Doug Ford's office about the GSA walkout here in Alberta. And one of the things, the reason that this becomes at all important um, number one, Adriana Lagrange. You've got the statement. Yep. And I, I didn't hate her statement. Um, I I found that it I found that it was slightly lacking. But well, it, it's kind of like I said before, though, that they've really convinced themselves that what they're doing is not a step backwards. Right. And um, so while she does say that her most important job as Minister of Education is to listen, she will have an open line of communication with everyone who has a role in our province's education system. One of her top priorities is to meet with students as well as parents, teachers, principals, trustees, and other stakeholders and work with them to strengthen our education system. Our government has been very clear we do not support mandatory parental notification or outing of any student. So for me, that last sentence is what really the difference maker is. They may not support mandatory outing or Mm -hmm. parental notification, but any option to notify acts as a deterrent particularly in a school that is based on religious faith principles, faith principles that 
don't support LGBTQ people. Right. And so for me, that's kind of the difference maker is that it's a it's a subtle semantic difference, but in practical terms and impact, it is significant in that if you have the option to notify, it acts as a deterrent. Right. I mean, I think at one point, probably what will happen is you'll see some group challenge the repeal of the Bill 24 and the JCCF has lost actually on the mm-hmm. day of the, um, day of the swearing in they lost their appeal to challenge the Bill 24 yeah and the justices said that basically that uh, the evidence of good achieved by GSAs in protecting the safety and privacy interests of individual children is more compelling than the new evidence of schools termination of funding for non-compliance with the legislation. So mm-hmm. there's a case already before the courts where they were trying to appeal or repeal this uh, Bill 24, get an injunction against it, and they've lost now twice. Yeah. And so I think what will ultimately happen is Kenny will take the Ralph Klein route that, well, we tried and we fought like hell, but we lost. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that you'll see LGBTQ allies continue to fight for these protections to stay in place. Yeah, and that's and that's something that I'm definitely hopeful for. But it also uh, I don't even remember if I said this now. It's it's interesting that there were uh statements from both the premier and the minister of education regarding the GSA walkout because in less than 2 days or in exactly 2 days, I guess, we have Alberta's annual march for life in Edmonton. Mhm. And that generally uh, takes students out of class to go participate in political events in Edmonton. Yeah. um, (laughs) This is interesting because Kenny, in his statement outside of uh, Doug Ford's um, office, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, you may have the exact wording, but said it's, um, it's good that students are engaged but he would prefer that they not be doing politics during school hours. Yes. And uh, so it'll be curious to see whether or not he takes that same stance when it comes to uh, students leaving class to support this pro-life march. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the expectation is that Jason Kenney will just be unavailable for comment that day because... He's never commented on it before. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't expect it to. Um, was there anything else that really pushed us this week? I mean, you know, Jason Kenny was talking about his first 100 hours in office. As, as I mentioned, you know, three quarters of that 100 hours were spent in Ottawa. And, you know, and I realized that right now, Alberta is Alberta's facing a bit of a fight with against some of these bills. So I don't think that it's I don't think that it's unrealistic. It just also plays into the perception 
that Jason Kenney would much rather be in Ontario than in Alberta. Yeah, it again, I do believe the long term game for Kenny is, is that he hopes to lead the federal conservative party. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this before, though. Um, I think that some of his stances and his support for people like Mark Smith and whatnot have tainted his ability to lead the federal party. But if you see Donald Trump reelected and if you see kind of the swing towards more right-wing populist governments. If there's not a reaction to that, I think his chances and his viability as federal leader are stronger. But there's a couple things that most people didn't anticipate Sheer would be able to pull out a win. Right. Anticipated that Trudeau was going to be a two or maybe even a three-term liberal prime minister. And that increasingly doesn't appear to be the case and Mm -hmm. so you know if if sheer wins which if i was a betting person that's where i'd be playing placing my money um he's probably going to be able to lead for one or two terms like he's kind of despite the accusations that he's got an extremism problem he himself is not extreme Mm -hmm. and he's kind of vanilla and in some ways vanilla Sometimes it's safe. Well, it's safe. And in this day and age, it might actually be stable and it might be something that lends itself to forming government for a longer period of time. Right. And uh, so in a lot of ways, I actually think sheer winning could be very good for Canada. Because if you do see Trudeau win a second term, you're going to see the reactionary extreme right elements kind of continue to act out. Um, right. And uh, so, I mean, that changes a couple things for Kenny because it doesn't create a clear pathway for Kenny to go back to Ottawa and to fight a Trudeau government that has become tired. And mm-hmm. so uh, I think that you probably see Kenny stay in Alberta politics for, two, three, four terms, if... Um, <laughs> you have I'm almost glad that we don't show reaction. video. <laughs> but uh, you're going to see a longer-term Premier Kenny if Sheer wins the federal election. And um, Sheer's young and he's got a lot of runway, and you may not wind up seeing Kenny make that transition to federal politics if Sheer wins this election. Um, but uh, this is... Again, it's it's not as much about fighting for Alberta necessarily as it is trying to build support for a federal conservative win in the fall. And by way of doing that, that helps Alberta's policy outcomes and objectives, um, assuming the courts don't continue to smack them down. So... And that's, but it's, it's still debatable, even if, you know, Kenny and Harper didn't help Alberta overly when they were in government, right? They were between Redford and Prentice. They were, they were fighting certain things that the federal government was doing. Harper was the first one to make that claim that, uh, that oil would be phased out. 
Yes, he was. And right? like there's there's things that happen at the federal level. They have to take care of more than just Alberta. Yep. As much as we would like to think that, you know, if we have a whole if we have a prime minister from Calgary that everything will be fine. That didn't happen. Yeah. We have we have a history of that. Apparently the most popular prime minister ever <laughs> did not manage to do what Alberta thought could be done if we had a prime minister from Calgary. So, you know, there's there's competing issues at play. And just because Kenny manages to get that federal alliance or ally definitely doesn't mean that it's suddenly going to become easier. In, in fact, that almost creates more friction because as long as it's Trudeau, then Kenny can stomp his feet and stay and point his finger and say, it's all about Trudeau. But as soon as a C, if a CPC government forms, well, then suddenly he can't, you know, he, it, it ties them just, just like it did, you know, when Christy Clark was putting all of her uh, conditions on trans mountain approval, yeah. Kenny and Harper were silent because yeah. they had to be, that was their ally. Yeah. So, the difference, though, now is is that you you don't have a liberal government in Ontario. Most of the Atlantic provinces have moved to the right as well, mm -hmm. and um, Quebec definitely, although not a not directly aligned with the Conservative Party, is a right leaning party. Right. And so, I mean, really, other than the territories and a few Atlantic provinces who are expected to move to the right, you have conservative, like the whole country pretty much is blue. Um, right. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. And so it, it's not that you're going to have an Alberta centric federal government, but you're going to have an Alberta friendly federal government. And I, I think that just a little bit will be enough to help Kenny achieve what he wants or needs to do. Yeah, no, that might be that might be a good point. Um, yeah, I think that almost covers it for me. And I've written down some times for you if you want to go through and remove the federal stuff. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I don't know. Does that does that complete our first week? What are what are they doing? What are they doing right now? Are they is it just preparing? for the first sitting of the legislature. Yeah, so first sitting of the legislature is going to be on May 21st, so 14 days from today. Mm -hmm. And um, so right now what's going on behind the scenes is you've got staff being hired, you've got um, legislative agendas being not developed because a lot of that actually happened before the election. Right. They, teams working to write legislation and make sure that they were able to move really quickly. But what they're doing is they're, for lack of a better word, indoctrinating the civil service into what their policy objectives are and how they want to accomplish that. And um, making sure that everybody who is in key positions is aligned with their policy objectives. So you've already seen a large amount of the purge happen from the NDP loyalists and they've identified the staff that are aligned with them and will support the policy work that and objectives that they want to accomplish. So that's your, it's going to be, 
fairly quiet, I think, for the next 10 to 14 days while that work goes on. Okay. Well, we can always look forward to that because the first week was loud. Yep. <laughs> sure. And definitely, I, I think the people that you are going to see be fairly active. Um, you're going to probably see education is going to be fairly active. Health is going to be um, kind of low-lying for the first little bit, I think. Uh, but the education minister is going to be, or not education, um, energy minister, Sonia Savage, is right. one. You're going you're gonna to see her face a lot. Right. She's, yeah, she's going to be the all-star in this government, I think. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. And I mean, if it quiets down for the next couple of weeks, that probably can't be a bad thing. Yep. I, well, I honestly have to say, well, if if our government is not making headlines, you know, from the last two years, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there will be lots to talk about, I'm sure. Thanks for joining us today. This has been the Political R&D Podcast with Robbie Krieger-Smith. And Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. Deirdre, where can people find you online? They can find me on Twitter at Mitchell underscore AB. And you can find me online at RKS Alberta. The Political R&D Podcast can be found on Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. And you can also find Political R&D on Twitter at Political R-N-D. Goodbye, Robbie. Goodbye, Deirdre. Thank <laughs> you.